Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the great pleasure of speaking with William Anderson, hopefully soon to be Dr. Anderson. William is a Colorado native and ends his email signature with love first, and that truly sums up the leadership style that he works to exhibit. William wants those that he has the opportunity to lead to know that he has the utmost love and respect for them and that he sees himself on a parallel journey to improve and succeed right along with the person or people that he gets the opportunity to lead. As a first-year doctoral student, William understands that he has much to learn in an effort to be the best version of himself he can be and strive to not only be a lifelong learner, but to model what lifelong learning is all about. William loves his students, his school, his community, and his content, and is excited to do whatever it is he can to try to instill in his students the same or a similar passion for history that he has. He believes that understanding history helps students to better understand themselves and the world around them. And he wants his students to be masters of themselves so they can go into the world knowing just how they want to contribute to it. So welcome, William Anderson. How are you? I'm fantastic. And yourself? I'm doing well. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am ready, ready, ready. All right. So, William, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Sure. What I'm doing now, I am one of the senior team leads for our school, which um, I work in Denver Public Schools at the Emanuel High School. And within our school and our district, we have hybrid roles for our teachers that have them work part-time in the classroom in the, the other half of their day, we are spending our time coaching teachers as well as doing evaluations of teachers. Um, I started in this role probably five years ago mm-hmm. and just love the balance of being able to still have my time with my kiddos and still being able to do my instruction, but also being able to work with a number of teachers throughout the building and really try to support the vision that our school has for um, great teaching and building great relationships with our students. So you started that five years ago, you said? Yes. Okay, so I've had a conversation about hybrid positions with Sarah Brown Wessling, um, Mm -hmm. who you know well. Um, She referred me to you. And one of the things that we talked about was really that was a two-person job. So I'm sure that since five years ago, it's kind of changed a little bit. So can you tell us about the process? Um, How was it accepted from the beginning? How has it changed? 
first a really big shout out to Sarah Brown Wesley. Yes. Truly one of the best in the business. Five years ago when it started off, it was kind of a muddied job. Mm-hmm. I think as our district piloted the idea of having hybrid roles, the reservations really came more from the teachers who were going to be in the role because they were nervous that their colleagues might feel a certain type of way about them coming in and coaching and evaluating them. But I think really quickly that anxiety that came from having a peer come in just went away once they saw that while we're in our roles, we're not looking for gotchas and that we actually bring a different level of understanding and empathy to the role of evaluator and coach because we too are also being evaluated and coached even while we're in our hybrid roles. And over the last five years, I think teachers' acceptance of us in those hybrid roles and those teachers who are in those hybrid roles have really just kind of grown and built on one another. And now it feels such like an organic process to have a person who is currently a teacher coming in and helping with instruction and somebody who's currently a teacher coming in and doing evaluations and providing feedback for teachers. So I would say that in the last five years, it has just really blossomed into something that I think both parties are really invested in. How wonderful. Now, you did say that you also get evaluated and coached. Yes. Um, which is to me great because I don't see how we step into the position of coaching if we don't have a coach. I mean, if we don't connect those two, I think that's really awesome. Um, it shows integrity in the process, right? Because mm-hmm. um, we're learning as we're doing. So thank you so much for sharing that. So you are in Denver yes. and you, you teach social studies? Yes. And AVID, which is like a college prep okay. course. Right. And I'm also the avid site coordinator for our school. So I kind of, for lack of a better word, oversee all the different avid classes. So I teach the 12th grade avid and we have it 9th through 12th grade. That's pretty cool because I know that some of the reasons why people hesitate to move from a teaching position into an official leadership position is because they will miss the classroom. So this position affords you the opportunity to do both yes. and to also test some things out, right, that you're learning about leadership. Absolutely. And I think, too, being in a position in high school where there's so many things going on developmentally, bringing that leadership role model in place is really awesome. All right. So, William, how would you describe your leadership style? My leadership style is very relationship-based and very much rooted in taking theory to action. I think when I work with the various teachers that I work with or when I'm working with different groups from different districts or different education groups, I really try to be as transparent as possible and letting them know where I come from, letting them know what my expertise lies, as well as trying to provide them with the information that I use to inform what I'm asking of them to do. So I'm very much 
the type of leader that says, hey, if I want you to do something, here's the research that backs up what I'm asking you to do and the reason why I think it would be a good fit for you. Mm -hmm. I also think with that relationship style, it allows me to really tailor my leadership. I don't think I have the same leadership style with each person I interact with, but because it's so relational, when I'm working with this specific person, my leadership takes on this particular type of style. When I'm working with this particular type of group, it takes on this type of style, and it really kind of morphs more to the person or group that I'm interacting with more than it is a set in stone, this is how I do leadership. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's important to you to respond to the question, why? Like, for instance, when you ask something of someone, it's important for you to respond to their question, even if they don't have a question of why you're asking them to do that. That's your teacher influence, right? (laughs) This is true. This is very true. (laughs) I love that because... I always ask that question. I've always asked that question. I think I drove my parents crazy asking why, why, why. But it's inviting. It opens people up to the possibility of learning more, of growing, and also doing things because there's a purpose to it. Yes. Right? You're not asking things arbitrarily. Yes. Um, So you also said that you're a relationship-based leader. Why is that important to you? I think it's important for two reasons. For the people I'm lucky enough to help lead, I want them to really know who I am. I really want them to know where I'm coming from and that I'm sincere in what I'm asking them to do. I would never want to be the type of leader that seems distant, that seems unapproachable, that seems as if the people that I'm leading need to fall in line. I want to be the type of leader where the people or person who I get to lead sees me as somebody that they can confide in, somebody that they can come to to say, hey, I want to try to do this thing. How can you support me? Them to be able to feel like they can say, hey, I'm struggling in this thing. Can you help me? I want them to also be able to come and say, hey, I'm kicking butt and taking names, doing this thing. Watch me do it. And let's talk about how I can do it even better. I just think the relationship style allows the learning to really be a two-way street. I also want to let the person that I lead know that I'm also a learner and that I'm sure they have plenty to offer me. I know I don't have all the answers. So I think with that relationship style, it allows both of us to be able to gain something from one another because we're both open and knowing that neither one of us have all the answers and that we're all just trying to get better in what we're doing. That's great. So I kept hearing you say the person I get to lead or the people I get to lead, which occurs to me as though you feel it's an honor to lead people. Absolutely. I mean, an honor and a privilege, whether it is my principal or if it's a group that's bringing me in to do professional development for their organization, whenever they feel as if I have something to offer them, I really take that as a blessing to be able to say, hey, we think you have something to offer. We want to get it to you. We want you to bring it to us. And I want to make sure I can come through and deliver because they do have that faith in me. William, that's really wonderful because it's exactly what good leadership looks like. Someone who's there to serve 
the people they lead. And so I really want to honor you. Now, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? Really kind of going back to that relationship style, I think it's one of those things that has just always been said that the person that knows something is the one that knows they know nothing. Mm. And I really try to root my leadership in that, in that um, I don't have the answers and that I'm on this journey just as much as a person who is asking me to lead them. And with that being said, I think that pushes me to go into the different circumstances and to go into working with a different people or person and really educate myself and how I want them to lead and really make sure I'm providing them with exactly what it is. I've never been one whose leadership is like this blanket style where no matter what it is, I'm going to go deliver this box of information that I know. Mm -hmm. I really want to make sure that no matter who it is that I'm leading, I go back, I do my research, I find out who they are, or who that organization is. I find out as much as I can about the area in which they think I can help them. And then I go back and I do my homework as much as I can to make sure I'm providing a tailor-made experience of leadership for them. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, I know I don't know. And I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with not being this holder of the information, but somebody who is going to go on a journey with the people that I'm leading. And hopefully when we're done, both of us leave the situation better. Hmm. It sounds to me like humility is really important for you, very important to hold on to. Very much so. I think one of the things that can really taint leadership is this idea that the person in the position of leader is like this holier than thou or as if they're this person who is just the all knowing. Hmm. I think in the business that we're in, especially in education, because things shift and change so much because you're working with students that are just so dynamic and organizations that are just so fluid and never stagnant that leadership in this space can't be something where it's, oh, I have the answer. I know just what to do. Just do this thing. I don't think it's ever that. I think it's always about really being prescriptive in the work that we do. And to be prescriptive, you really have to kind of humble yourself up and say, hey, I might not know, I might need to find out more and then doing that work so mm -hmm. we can provide the support that's needed. Thank you so much for that, William. Now, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? Man, there's a lot. <laughs> the principal at my school, mm -hmm. Nicholas Dawkins, is a leader I look to as probably the role model for me in ed. When I started with Denver Public Schools eight years ago, he was my AP mentor and an assistant principal at our school. And he really just showed me what it meant to lead with your heart and what it meant to really be an expert in the work that you do. He showed me how to take risk and be willing to take the lumps when you do something wrong and also enjoy the success when you do something right. He's now my principal. I left the school that I was at so I could 
come with him to Manuel when they announced him as a principal to Manuel because I just believe so much in his vision. He is student-centered. He is community-centered. He is a humble leader as well. He also just has such a passion for the work and understands the context. He understands the circumstances in which we have to work and is really about not just doing what the status quo says should be done for our students, but making sure what we do here is specific to the students that we serve. And I mean, I think that just bleeds throughout my leadership style and being able to want to take risk and wanting to do what I think is right, even if it does push back against what might be seemed as what is normal or what is the right thing to do. And his style has been one that just been I sit back and I watch him do what he does and I see how I can do it too you know one of the first things you said was that he leads with his heart so if a student were to ask you Mr. Anderson how does one lead with the heart what would be your response I would say it starts with really knowing what you want to lead in. I think for you to be able to lead with your heart, you have to have a strong foundation and background in where you want to lead. When I see our principal and what I try to do when I lead is to make sure if I'm going to ask people or a person to do something that is different or that might go against what they believe or what might seem to be out of the box, I need to be an expert in that so I can make sure to support them in it fully. And it's not just all passion. I think sometimes leading from the heart can get confused with leading with passion. You can be passionate about something, but also not know enough about it to really lead from that space. But I think real leadership from the heart means being passionate about it and also being hyper knowledgeable about it to be able to support people in that passion that you have. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've experienced people with passion and no wisdom. Yes. <laughs> that's dangerous too. It is. Um, it that, very, very much is. Thank you so much for that insight. Now, William, what's the best advice you've ever received? Probably some of the best advice I've ever received came during my undergrad and it was at my grandma's house, who I just love more than, I mean, just about anybody on this earth. Shout out to grandma. What's her name? Shout out to grandma, Myrtle Allen. I was at my grandma's house and it was while I was struggling in my undergrad, my grades weren't what they were supposed to be. And I didn't know if college was the thing for me and if me being able to be a teacher was the thing that I was going to be able to do. And grandma and her grandma wisdom is cool and is calm and just collective and is loving as she always is. She just looked at me and said, William, you got it. Stop doubting yourself. I have a hundred percent faith that you can do whatever it is you really want to do. Stop worrying so much. Just do it. You got it, William. And those words are some things that have forever stuck with me. When I'm struggling in that first year teaching, whether it was struggling earning a master's, whether it's struggling right now working on this doctorate, when school stressing me out, when I'm looking at all the stacks of papers I have graded or professional development and teacher eval and all the stuff and all the minutia of 
of what comes into teaching is just staring me in the face. And I don't think I can do it. Those words always come back like, William, you got it. You can do it. And if mm. Rama's got faith that I can do it, then hey, I must be able to do it. I love that because many times, a lot of us as leaders, as teachers, as students, we struggle with the same thing. Self-doubt um, and leadership is about learning to lead yourself well first. Then yes. you can lead other people. And it seems like you value having people speak into your life, mentors, mm. coaches. How important is that as a leader? I think that is a key aspect of leadership. I don't think you can be a leader on an island at all. I think that leads to misguided advice. I think that leads to uninformed decisions. I work really hard to surround myself with people who can support me and who can keep me humble and who can point me in the right direction. Because again, I know I don't know it all. You know, I know I can speak to a couple of things. I know I read and wrote about a lot, but I by no means have the golden ticket to be able to say I don't need anybody else's help. Mm -hmm. I think I would not be in the position that I'm in if it wasn't for the countless people who have supported me. I'm sure my coach, Kristen Moreland, who is an amazing, amazing coach who I just love to life because of all the support she shows me, gets tired of me bugging her in her office and saying, hey, I got this idea. What do you think? Hey, I want to write this paper. Hey, 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 I'm knocking on her door. I'm stopping her in the hallway because I know if I want to be the best leader I can, I need to be able to have somebody who's a sounding board. I think my fiance is another person who I can go to and bring these ideas in a space where I know she's going to give me honest feedback and she's going to tell me, William, that's an awesome idea. Or she's going to say, William, I don't know what the hell you're thinking. No, <laughs> don't do that. You know, <laughs> relax and maybe try doing this. So her support has been huge. And I mean, I could go on for days with the amount of people who I find for support. One of the main groups of people who I pull so much information from is my students. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know if they know how much I learn from them, steal from them, and implement in other spaces because they're the ones who we do it for. And I think their voice is just so critical to the work that we do that if I'm in education and I want to help students get to fill in the blank, student voice has to be an aspect of that. So my students inform my leadership so much as well. That's awesome that we learn from those we serve. Yes. All right. So William, what does it mean to have a good team and how do you build and sustain one? I think the cornerstone of a good team is going to be a shared vision and a concrete understanding of that vision and what the outcome of that vision is. When I think about the great teams that I've been on professionally, I know we have a target and we share that vision. We share the goal that we want from that vision. 
And then I think the next piece is just we are really consistent in it and we continue to push in the direction that we know we want to go. Does that mean that we don't make adjustments on the way as things come about? Absolutely, we do. But I don't think it changes the target. I think one of the things that hurt teams is a moving target model where as a team, we want to try to do this. No, wait, we want to try to do this. No, wait, we want to try to do this. No, wait, we want to try to. No, let's find our target. Let's stay consistent to it. Let's do what we have to do to find out if we're successful in it. And let's measure it. The team that I work on now, our whole idea is to reflect, revise, retry. Reflect, revise, retry. When we set a target, we say, okay, we want to do this thing. We go out and do it. We reflect on our success or failures at it. We revise our methods and then we retry it again and continue to really try to meet the vision that we have set for ourselves. Mm. And I think that's key to really building a strong team. To have a shared vision is important and to keep focused, right? Because there are so many distractions, even in a short amount of time when you're having a meeting, little distractions happen. But to keep asking the questions and to refocus, what are we doing here? And that's not easy to do. It's not, especially in the work that we do in education where so many different variables can come in and kind of monkey wrench what you're planning on doing. But I think that's what makes creating a really specific targeted vision has to do so that you make sure that you're rallying your team around something that regardless of changes in the ed atmosphere or in your school building atmosphere or in your nation or state or city's atmosphere, that vision is still something that you can ground yourself in and make adjustments, not necessarily to the vision, but maybe to methods due to the changes in the work. Thank you for that. Hey, leaders, if you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. Can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? In general or professionally? Whatever you want to share with our listeners. Being a black male in America is not an easy thing to do. Whether that is driving down the street and going to the grocery store or being a professional in a school or in a school district or in an education space. Some of the challenge that comes with it is not only overcoming other people's perceptions of who you are, but also having to overcome the perceptions you may have on yourself. The way that the society views black males, that does not escape black males either. We're socialized in the same way. We're saturated in all of the same negativity and images of deficit and danger and all the bad that can be the thoughts or the things that come to mind as being a black male in this country. And being able to 
find a way to navigate in this world and not let those things prevent you from moving forward is a challenge. Mm. Um, how do I do it? One, I stay prayed up. <laughs> Two, I think it goes back to something that I said earlier is just really surrounding myself with people who are going to support me and speak life into what I'm doing and really modeling the behavior. There's a great poem called I'd Rather See a Sermon. And the poem is all about lip service is good, but like being able to see somebody do the things that they say others should do is really where the value comes in. And I just love that I have surrounded myself with people who show me the sermon. My principal, Nick Dawkins, black male who is taking on the world and he's doing it from the position of a principal. Mm-hmm. I'm a member of Educators Leaders of Color or EDLOC. And it's an organization full of people of color who are really trying to be a national force in the ed movement. And my family members, my friends, having so many positive role models showing me that regardless of how this world or this country may see me, regardless of the images, regardless of the music, regardless of all that negativity that could exist, I have enough sermons walking around me showing that it doesn't have to be that it gives me the strength to get through a lot of the adversity that I might face. I love that. I'd rather see a sermon. And to me, it just speaks that a leader walks the talk, right? Absolutely. Um, And I appreciate that. I'm raising a young black man. (laughs) He's Mm -hmm. 14 now. So there are a lot of things that I'm learning. And I look to you and I look to people that have walked that and are walking that. And that really touches my heart. So thank you so much for that, William. Oh, absolutely. Now, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? One of my greatest successes? That's tough. I've been extremely blessed. I think one that sticks out is in 2015, I was able to be one of the keynote speakers for the Bill and Melinda Gates ESET 2 National Conference in Seattle. And (laughs) that was crazy (laughs) because just thinking about my own personal history, I grew up kind of a struggling academic. The first time I took the ACT, I got a 15. The second time I took it, I tried so hard. And I got a 17 and my high school career and a lot of that, my early college career was just really filled with a lot of people telling me that education and being a teacher and stuff like that might not be the path for me. And that maybe I should just think about going to work and maybe I should just think about doing something different and to be able to finish school, to be able to earn a master's, get a job, and work for an organization like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and for them to have faith in me to say, hey, we want you to be the keynote for 500 teachers from around the country. I'll never forget standing on that stage and looking out and having the opportunity to share a word with those people, not only because the room was filled with just so many amazing teachers, but because I could not believe I had come so far. That's awesome. Can you send me some pictures of that? I would love that. That's great. Now, William, what would you tell a new leader 
who's discouraged about their working climate or culture. As hard as it may be, I would say, in their leadership role to stay the course. I think for leaders, it's really important that the work that they do, they believe in. Because if they really believe in it, regardless of the environment that they're in, that they're surrounded by, they'll have that passion mixed with that wisdom to be able to get through it. As much as I love Denver, as much as I love Denver Public Schools, there are definitely things that I totally disagree with and that I do not like the direction that the education and the quote unquote system is going. And sometimes it does make you want to just throw your hands up. But the passion that I have for how I want to lead keeps me from being able to say, I can't do this. I think the work is just too important to sit there and say, because there's bumps in the road, I need to like get off this road. There's no way. Mm -hmm. I think if leaders start to waver, they should really self-check and say, how much do I believe in what I'm leading in? And if you really believe in it, you'll stick to it. And if you don't, that's okay too. Right. I've had passions for things and have wanted to lead in particular areas and then have bumped into more information and said, oh man, I have to change what I'm thinking. I think that's another thing I would also offer up to leaders is to say that there's nothing wrong with your plans being adjusted. They yeah. should. Mm-hmm. I think what's important for us in leadership is for us to be experts in what we do. If we're experts in what we do and we're professionals in what we do, it makes it a lot more acceptable and it's easier to go to sleep at night when you know what you're doing is right because there's research to back it, because you've tried it, because you've seen the successes and you really believe in the work because there's expertise in it. And I can't emphasize that knowing what you're leading piece is going to help get through those tough times and that adversity. Mm-hmm. And this is where coaches and mentors really play a key role, right? Because sometimes you're in your own head yes. and you're so discouraged. And so you need other people to speak into your life here. So thank Absolutely. you so much for that. Now, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? As a lifelong learner, which I definitely would consider myself I'm learning can just continually how I can better serve the people I've been asked to lead. I'm learning those teachers better. I'm learning their subject matter more because as a social studies teacher, I'm now finding myself coaching and evaluating science teachers. So for me, that's a call to action. I need to learn more about science so that I can be as objective as possible. I'm working with a diverse amount of teachers in their experience. One of the teachers I'm coaching has been teaching for 48 years, which is crazy to think that this person has been teaching for two years short of a half of a century. And And then you step in. (laughs) Yes. I'm this 34-year-old young man who has 10 years experience, and I have to go into their classroom and try to help them improve. And What that means to me is that I have to find a different type of way to be able to coach and support this teacher. I refuse to be this young thundercat going into somebody's classroom who's been teaching um, 10 years longer than I've been alive and try to tell them what's what. 
I have to be able to teach and I have to be willing to learn different ways to be able to approach that work. I'm also a super nerd who just can't get enough of school and who just can't get enough of books. And I'm back in school now earning a doctorate at CU Denver in urban and diverse communities and just learning how I can be the best type of teacher that I can be. Through that work and that program, I've fallen in love with this idea around language and what language does for education and what language can do for education. So now I'm spending all my time just studying language and trying to figure out what we can do for our students to better support them in that work. And I think when people say they're a lifelong learner, I think sometimes it can be a cliche thing to say because as teachers, it seems like we should say. But I think being a lifelong learner is really carving out and dedicating time to learning more Mm. and not skimming it. I mean, spending hours and hours and hours and having conversations with other leaders and other experts who know far more than you and having them hip you to ways that you can be better. I think that's to me what it means to be a lifelong learner, to really dedicate yourself to learning and following through with that dedication. Thank you so much, William. You certainly bring to life what lifelong learner is. So when you were talking about the person you coach, that she's so much older than you, one of the things that just jumped out to me is how you value people. You value them so much that you work hard to make sure that you're serving them in the best way possible. You make sure that you're not that cocky young kid that comes in, thinks they know everything, because you honor the work that the person you coach has done. The fact that he has opened his learning to having you speak into his life says a lot about who you are as a person and a lot about them. So I really want to honor you here because you're doing the work that is the work of a lifelong learner, is the work of a leader. So thank you so much for living that. So this is a doozy. Here we go. If there was something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? That is a doozy indeed. I would change the perception of what education is supposed to be. I honestly do not believe that as a country that the powers that be really, truly believe that education is as important as they say it is. And what leads me to that belief is that education isn't a priority. The fact that we have so many schools that are struggling for funding, that we have so many students who are underserved, and the national conversation isn't about doing what it takes to solve and remedy those issues leads me to believe that it's not a priority. It's something where we live in a country where the only places students really are constantly reinforced that education is important is in school. Nothing on television, not much in movies, not much on the radio is telling students how important education is. We can tell them how important celebrities' lives are. We can tell them how important sports teams are. We can tell them how important 
uh, countless other things are, but the priority is not education. And because it's not a priority, it doesn't get the funding. Because it doesn't get the funding, it just continues to compound problems. So if there was anything that I could fix, it would be the perception of education and that we actually, as a nation, make it a priority to provide our children with the best education possible. Okay. Thank you so much for that, William. What have you read that our listeners should read and why? As a historian, I love history and I love nonfiction. And some of the best reads that I've read um, as recently have been Articulate While Black, which is by Alum in Smitherman, I believe. And it's this book all about President Obama and how who he was was very much defined by the language that he used. As I said earlier, I have been on this language kick as of lately and understanding how much language is tied to identity. And because of that, books like Articulate While Black and Ratio Linguistics really start to unpack the idea that a lot of the issues we bump into as a society are wrapped in the language that we use and the way that we talk about problems, the way that we talk about people and the way that we perceive people based off of the language that they use. So both of those books, Articulate While Black, and then it's a collection of essays called Ratio Linguistics that are really, really good and I think important reads. Stamped from the beginning by Ibarra Kendi, which is a definitive history of racist ideas in America. It starts from the colonial times up until I think like 2015 and just about the history and the development of racism in our country, I think is such an important read in a time like now because we wonder how we got to this space. Mm. And that book and that author does an amazing job of saying that we're not where we are in this country and then in the climate that we have by accident, that it is very much product of a history and historical circumstance that bring us to where we are. I think Writing Beyond Race by Bell Hooks is amazing in really looking at how capitalism, white supremacist ideology, imperialism, and especially patriarchy are contributing to so many of the ills of our society and getting us to stop thinking about problems in isolation and thinking about how we live in a society full of interlocking systems, that if we're interested in changing the society, we have to look at dynamic ways to be able to combat these systems and not just a singular problem. We can't get rid of racism if we're not also tackling imperialism, patriarchy, and capitalism. We can't get rid of patriarchy if we're not looking at a white supremacist ideology, imperial, like all of these things are very much connected until we start to really understand those connections. It's going to be really hard for us to change those things. Bell Hooks is a legend. So, I mean, anything that she writes. Two more, I would say Eight Years We Were in Power. The collection of essays by ta Coates is an amazing read. That is an awesome critique of our contemporary circumstances. And finally, I'm a comic book nerd. 
<laughs> and the new Dark Knight Metal series by <laughs> Scott Snyder is amazing, and it is a very much welcome break from theory, research, and history, and all of those things. So I suggest that anybody pick up any of uh, Scott Snyder's Batman comic books. They are uh, amazing. I love that. Thank you so much, (laughs) William. Now, you have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? I wake up early, 4.50 in the morning. What? And I get to my school building by about 6, have my coffee, read the news, throw on some classic jazz and just really giving myself some time to just breathe, to have some just quiet time in my building. I think it's always just pretty much me and the janitors that early, maybe one other. And just really trying to get myself prepared for the day, thinking about the lessons, making my copies and doing those things. Once I leave school, I try to give myself a little bit of downtime, 30 minutes to an hour to just kind of relax and decompress from the day. And then diving back into the work, mm-hmm. whether that's work for my doctoral program or if it's grading papers, lesson planning, writing blogs, doing whatever that work consists of. I think I'm sure my fiance would agree that I love the work. I love it. I can tell. And I don't mind that 80% of my day is really consumed by it because that's what I want to do. I'm a big sports guy and I I try to work just as hard as somebody who would be a professional athlete. I think these guys who are in the NBA, the NFL, they spend hours and hours and hours in the gym, in rehab, in physical therapy. And like that's all that they do. Their lives are consumed by the work that they do. And I don't mind my life being consumed by it. I love it. So, you know, typically, ed leaders and teachers, um, we have a hard time with balance. What advice would you give us about maintaining balance? As much as I do love the work, I also do not mind stepping away from it. So I feel like I go so far during the school year that when Christmas break comes, I'm decompressing. I'm not answering those emails I'm not reading that research. I'm spending time with my fiance, my family, my brothers, my sisters, my friends, and I escape it for a while. It's very intentional that yes. during the break, you are really on a break. On a break, I'm on a break. And I think that's important. I, I think that as much as we love the work, I don't think my passion for the work is something that's unique. I think it's something that a lot of teachers have. I think it's something that you have to have as a teacher, or this is not the type of job that you're going to want because it takes that type of dedication. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, when the breaks do come though, I'm taking a break. I'm relaxing. I'm kicking my feet up and I'm going to enjoy it. That's great advice actually, because some people can't do that. Or have a hard time doing that. And I believe that that's really important because we do need to re-energize. We need to feed ourselves so that we have the energy to help other people. So, William, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I actually was having this conversation with my students earlier, probably maybe within the last month. I think I would tell myself to keep being the young, dumb kid that I was. 
I only say that because if it was not for me being the out of control middle high school and early 20s person that I am, I don't think I would value and understand the gravity of what I'm doing now. So I wouldn't want to go back and tell myself not to get kicked out of the University of Northern Colorado because getting thrown out of school was, (laughs) I think, one of the best things that happened to me because I ended up coming back down to Denver and going to Metropolitan State to earn my undergrad and That was one of the best things that ever happened to me because that led to me being able to student teach where I did, which was such an amazing opportunity, which led for me to me earning the master's degree that I did, which led to this, which so like I would tell a younger me that, hey, man, it sucks right now, but. Just keep on keeping on, bro. You can do this. You know what I mean? Listen to grandma, man. Just keep listening to grandma. That's right. Wonderful. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on? I think in the work that we do, whether a leader, a teacher, a custodian, a lunch lady or a lunch guy, whatever the case may be, in education, If you're not rooted in love in everything that you do, you're probably going to be doing it wrong. For me, it has to be love first. And I think that will really keep us from making some of the wrong decisions. I think that love will keep us energized when we're burnt out and we're tired of all the BS. I think love makes the great days so much better because you know When you see those teachers or those people that you lead be successful, you guys can share that experience and that joy and it comes from a good place. And when you see things aren't going right, it's that love that makes you want to go back and change it and make it right. I think we just have to center ourselves in love for our students, for the, the people that we lead, for education, for learning. I just think love truly has to be at the center of all of that. That's a beautiful message. I love it. I love that you love love. <laughs> and that is great. William, you mentioned that you write a blog. I work with this group, um, the Center for Teaching Quality. I'm out of North Carolina. And shout out to Mama Lori, who hooked me up with those people. And I've just been really blessed to be able to do some freelance writing with them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Ed Week needs pieces, so they'll hit me up and say, hey, Will, man, do you want to write a piece for Ed Week? And I'll give them something. We just did a writing blog roundtable all on social justice for about five other teachers from around the country. All of us got to contribute a particular piece on something around social justice in this writer's roundtable. So it's not necessarily I have my own blog, but organizations have reached out and said, hey, we might need a piece for something. So, William, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Have a fantastic day and hugs to Grandma. Hey, will do. I'll give her a call today. Okay, (laughs) bye-bye. Bye. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.